Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've been enjoying our show, you will also enjoy our essays and articles over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Our pieces are written by some of your favorite published authors and powerful emerging voices. Our recently published piece is written by Shamile Sayed Mendez, where she writes candidly about life's hurdles and finding magic in the day-to-day. Shamile is the author of Furia, which recently released on September 15th about a powerful contemporary young adult book for fans of The Poet X and I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter set in Argentina about a rising soccer star who must put everything on the line, even her blooming love story, to follow her dreams. Shamile's 88 Cups of Tea article is the newest installment in our essay and podcast series of intimate stories in partnership with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in writing for children and young adults to create this thoughtfully curated series to provide you with as much inspiration as possible along your writing journey. If you haven't had the chance to check out the series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. We have podcast episodes that feature guests like Shamile's literary agent, Linda Camacho, and authors Kekla Magoon and Anne Na, along with articles and essays by Anne Davila Cardinal and many more. To read and listen to all of the podcast episodes and essays in our exclusive series with VCFA, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. And to learn more about the master's program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, head over to vcfa.edu. Now, for those of you who are looking for a super intimate space where you can meet our fellow podcast listeners who are storytellers just like you and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress, along with swapping recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole lot more that happens in there. So if you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. For our show today, we have award-winning author Tochi Onyebuchi. Tochi is the author of Beasts Made of Night, its sequel, Crown of Thunder, War Girls, Riot Baby, and its sequel and his newest novel, Rebel Sisters. His short fiction pieces have appeared in Asimov's science fiction, Omenina, and Black Enough, Stories of Being Young and Black in America. And his nonfiction has appeared in Uncanny Magazine, Nowhere Magazine, and the Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy. We discuss how Tochi gravitated towards opposite career paths and eventually merged them together. We explore his writing process, the ways it's evolved over time, and how he continues to find joy in the process. We also unpack how studying and critiquing different stories influenced his writing structure and guided him in building intricate plots. We dive into how Tochi cultivates a specific kind of confidence that enables us to bring our story ideas to life and how to maintain that confidence to pave the way for equity in publishing. And later, Tochi gives us a snapshot of his newly released novel, Rebel Sisters. Be sure to head over to our show notes page to download the writing prompt that Tochi created just for our storytelling community. Now let's jump right in. 
my God. Storytellers, I'm so excited to have Tochi here with us today. Why don't we just get started first by jumping all the way back, as far back as you can remember your very first memory <laughs> of storytelling. Oh, my goodness. You know, <laughs> so it's funny. I, I grew up in, I guess, what you could call a very biblically robust household. Oh, I like that saying. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. And, and mom had this it was sort of like an illustrated version of the most popular stories from the Bible, many of them the Old Testament, but some New Testament. And so it would have like illustrated versions of Noah building the ark, Joseph and his his brothers and the multicolored coat, a number of other stories. And so she would read these stories to us as part of our, you know, we would we would go to church and everything and, and she would read these these stories to us before bed. And I think from a very early period in my life, I associated storytelling with this like bigger than myselfness. It seemed to be a thing that existed outside of me or, or it was a way to tap into some different realm. And, you know, initially that realm was, you know, the Bible and and a lot of the things that surround or or fill up um, religion and religious sort of storytelling. But then it like I look back on it now and so much of my relationship with writing is almost faith based, I guess you could say. It's sort of like I when I'm writing, I feel as though I'm tapping into something so much greater than myself to the point where sometimes when I get into my flow state, it feels like prayer. And I feel like some of that can be tied back to those moments when I was being read to. And when I think back on my earliest sort of storytelling memories, that's what comes to mind. You're a brilliant human being, obviously. I mean, you graduated <laughs> from Yale, NYU Tisch School of Arts, Columbia Law School. I mean, we can just keep going on and it just won't stop. And then my hour is over with you. I understand as well you being from a Nigerian background. <laughs> you get it. Yes. You get it. <laughs> we have a very similar upbringing in chasing after scholarly accolades or just being very educated is something that's required. It's not even like, great yeah. job, honey. It's like, where's your five degrees? <laughs> like, you yeah, know exactly. <laughs> Please share how being able to cultivate, nourish, nurture your creative side while also fulfilling the cultural aspect of your upbringing and in a way trying not to bring shame to the family because <laughs> I can understand that. Absolutely. It's, it's almost as though there were these two dueling, maybe not even dueling impulses, but these two different impulses or engines that I was being driven by. It was like an unstoppable force you know, meets an immovable object. And so on the one hand, I had my writing and, you know, I, I'd say it was probably around sometime early high school that I realized that I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to like write professionally and have that be a source of income. But growing up in a Nigerian household, especially at that age, it was unfathomable to me to think of that as like a sole source of income. Uh, like I was, it was always like right and something else. Right. But I did know that there was nothing, no single activity I loved to do more than writing. And then the other sort of engine for me is sort of, you know, 
fealty to my mom. (laughs) You know, that contains the whole like do well in school and everything and succeed materially. And I knew if I jumped too early into the, oh, let me put all my eggs in the be a writer basket, that would have disappointed mom more than I was cool with doing at the time. So I think a lot of my life has been trying to bring bring two things together that people on the outside might view as irreconcilable. So I was always writing, no matter if it was a free period during high school or whether it was like, you know, after I'd finished homework in college or when, like whenever I had a free minute. I was always writing, but I was also doing well in school. And so it, it very early on, I learned that one did not have to take away from the other. And on top of that, I discovered that I didn't just love storytelling. I loved writing. So even playing with sentences and I would take that into the papers that I wrote. So I would I would be writing these papers for college, you know, later on for law school that would have these fire sentences. Like they would have sentences that I would be so proud of. Like I remember one example of this that came sort of very late in my journey was in law school, I was taking this seminar on theories of constitutional interpretation. It was basically looking at the ways in which Supreme Court justices have interpreted clauses of the constitution. And there are like a number of different methods that people have used or ascribed to that are sort of like, you know, governing philosophies. And I'd written this paper that proposed a new sort of modality, sort of like an intratextualism, right? And it was using the metaphor of the Bible, right? Where the base text of the Constitution was the Old Testament, and then you had the Reconstruction Amendments, you know, Amendments 13, 14, and 15, basically the post-Civil War Amendments that abolished slavery, you know, granted rights to, you know, the freed black population in America, et cetera, using that as the New Testament. And it was this whole, like, theory where you would use the latter as a prism through which to look at the And the sentences in that paper my God, like I'm still trying to figure out where and how I can get this thing like published and sent out into the world because like I am so, so proud of that paper. But it was like that sort of thing. It was like, let me see how I can make this work. I think that was a lot of my philosophy with regards to reconciling creative impulses with my sort of more traditionally scholarly and academic world. It was like, I don't want to give up either of these. I also liked school. Like I studied things that I was interested in for the most part. And so it never felt as though I was doing this completely out of filial piety. All right. My mom would definitely disown me and replace me with you. (laughs) If she hears this episode, you've published quite a lot of books. Are you right now currently in 2020 fully focusing on being an author? So as of March of 2019, I've been writing full time. (gasps) Oh my (laughs) God. All right. Well, how is your mom with that? You know what's funny? She's she's come around to it. And one thing that happened was I believe it was last fall, sometime I want to say maybe October 2019 or something like that. Um, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she she publishes picture books. And she had one coming out that season, I want to say that month. And 
my publicist at Razorbill, Vanessa De Jesus, reached out and was like, hey, Justice Sotomayor wants to do an event with you. And first of all, I was like, wait, what? And then, so then, you know, I got down to business and we put it all together and I texted my mom. I was like, hey, mom, I'm doing this event. Can you like come early? And so my mom arrives early. I get her into the building and I bring her to the green room and she sees Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor and they start chatting and I just like step off to the side and watch my mom hold court with like one of the most powerful women in the entire world. And I feel like that was the moment where mom was like, okay, I see, I see, okay, I get it now. So she's, I think she's on board now. Oh my God, I love that it took a Supreme Court justice. Well, like, I had to get the law degree before, like, <laughs> before I could go right full time. It was like, that was the deal, yeah. Oh my God, so I definitely had it easier because my mom's like, you know what, girl, I just give up on you. Just do what you need to do. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> So you see what I mean? Where I'm like, yeah, she definitely replaced me with you. So um, that is incredible. Your mom is incredible. How do you feel now? It's like you stepped into your own while maintaining that respect and love for your family, but also enjoying what you're doing. How how does that make you feel? I was on cloud nine, but also there was this titanic sense of of pride. I think part of because I'm I'm the oldest son. I'm the oldest of four. What was wild to me was in that moment, I was also thinking about mom's journey. And her coming as an immigrant to this country, having this really thick accent and, and you know, my father passed when when I was little. And so she'd been raising the four of us by herself this whole time. And everything that she had gone through to give us the best lives that we could have lived and everything that she had endured and all her like her own journey. And here she is in this moment talking with a Supreme Court justice and laughing, like telling jokes and everything. And the fact that I could help enable that moment, that made me so, so, so proud. I was like, if nothing else happens in my writing career, if I enjoy no other accolades or no sales or whatever, like it will all have been worth it for this moment, which I never thought would ever be a part of my publishing journey. You know, mom was always working, but like it was interesting because looking back, we never wanted for anything as kids. Like there was generally there was food in the fridge and like we always had clothes to wear. Like things were like we were taken care of. I think the thing that stands out for me is that, you know, some parents will tell their kids to like, you know, work hard and they'll say it, right? But mom was the constant epitome of working hard. So whenever I looked at her, she was working hard. And so that, I think, by so vividly providing this example for us to emulate, I think that drove home the message of work hard more than, you know, whatever other statement she could have articulated. So I think there was an element of that there. I think also 
was an element, at least within me, of, oh, man, I can't wait to get to the place where mom can finally retire and not have to, like, <laughs> you know, like, put herself through all of this, right? Because, like, you know, you see so much of the sacrifice. And, you know, the other side of that, too, is that, okay, she's doing all of this to make sure that I have these opportunities. I'm going to enjoy the heck out of these opportunities. And so, you know, college, for instance, at Yale, I did everything. And even before that, I went to Choate, Choate Rosemary Hall for boarding school. And it was my first real experience in that, you know, private school environment and, you know, going to class with rich white kids, you know. <laughs> and, you know, there was so much that we could do at that school. It was the very first time that I did theater. It was the very first time that I did study abroad. It was the very first time that I played organized sports, everything. And I just threw myself into it with gusto because, you know, mom had worked so hard to shoulder this door open for me. I was like, I'm going to explore every room. And it was the same thing in college. And a lot of that sort of played into my own personal advancement and became a bit more of my just sort of governing philosophy, which is do all of the things. So in law school, people would ask me, oh, Tochi, you know, are you going to be a lawyer or are you going to be a writer? And I was like, I'm Nigerian. Why choose when I can collect? <laughs> yes, that is the most legendary thing I've ever heard anyone say. You said something that's so interesting, which is not only did you love storytelling, but the love for writing in itself. So do you feel from when you first started writing to where you are now with all of these books under your belts that you're collecting, <laughs> excuse me, how do you find that your writing has evolved and how you approach writing and also how that ties into how you find joy with the process of writing? Hmm. That's actually a very fascinating question. Like now that I think about it, I think what has happened has been that my love has deepened and grown more wrinkles, you know, so to speak. Right. It used to be that I could just throw myself into a story and I was in paradise for the duration of the writing process, right? I didn't care necessarily how I was doing it. I was just telling the story. But as I progressed in my development of the craft, it's almost like I get why athletes love the sport that they play, right? Or, you know, particularly at a professional level and how they get so good at it, right? Because the amount of time that you spend doing that thing, if you didn't already have an abiding love for it, it would be madness, like why you, the amount of time that you would have to spend even outside of practice in the gym, working on your crossover, working on your jump shot, working on your whatever, it would literally have to consume your entire life. And if you didn't have an abiding love for that, you know, just as a foundation, it would be absolute madness to literally devote your life to the pursuit of this endeavor. So I find that my love for it has deepened as well as my appreciation for it and also my appreciation for the sheer serendipity of the fact that writing found me. It really did come down to when I was a kid. Originally, I was going to be an artist. I was going to be a comic book artist. And one of mom's jobs was janitorial. 
And so a couple times uh, throughout the week, she would take us kids with her to these office buildings scattered throughout Connecticut, and we would clean them. And, you know, I would take out the trash. You know, my brother would vacuum. Sisters would wipe down the desks. Like mom would do the bathroom. And and we would, you know, every it was like every Friday and sometimes Wednesdays, too. But every Friday, you know, she would take us kids and we would do our circuit. And in these office buildings, a lot of these places were getting ready to throw out these three ring binders full of blank sheets of paper. And so mom was like, oh, if they're going to get rid of these, let me just, you know, let me just help myself. And so I would take these binders and I would I would scribble on them. I would draw on them. And I was watching all this anime at the time and reading all these comics. And I was like, this is what I love to do. And so I would learn how to draw by going through these, these sheets of paper. And they'd have like 500 sheets of paper in them. And I'd fill them up in like two weeks. And so one day, I might have been in third or fourth grade when this happened. Mom saw me drawing and she said, Tochi, you have all these characters. Why don't you write stories about them? And at the time, it sounded like homework. I was like, Mom, why are you giving me homework? I literally just want to draw. Can I live? You know, I started writing one paragraph summaries of their adventures and whatnot. And then one paragraph became two. And then they started meeting each other. And I was like, oh, this is this is, this is pretty interesting. Okay. I think we're, I think we're on this, but like, it just goes to show the literal sheer serendipity. I might not have otherwise found writing, right. Or I might've found it much later in life. And it, it became such an incredible refuge for me, particularly in the immediate aftermath of my father's passing. Like it was a place where, you know, when so much in my life was outside of my control, I did have this sort of modicum of dominion. And I want to do justice to my writing by getting better at it. And that's not something that I thought about in the very, very, very beginning. Like in the beginning, it was just infatuation. It was literally just like me falling head over heels in love with the girl across the room, right? And this, at like where I'm at now, it's like, I want to delve as deep into knowledge of the craft as I can. I want to explore. I want to try new things. I want to do it justice. I want to be good at it, not because of external validation and whatnot, but because I know I will have done justice to my writing or justice to the profession, the craft of writing. How did you actively work on the actual craft side of it because I can't imagine you having any time to squeeze (laughs) in workshops. I can't help but wonder, did you have any outside activities, exercises that you were doing to consciously play with different muscles within the craft of writing it's funny. In I think this was in middle school. When I was in middle school, there was this online writing workshop that used to be sponsored by Delray Publishing. It was an online writing workshop for writers of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And it was free because it was sponsored by them. And it operated on a point system. So it cost you, I believe, two points to submit a short story or a chapter of a novel up unto 7,500 words. And to get points back, you had to read and review other people's short stories and novel chapters and whatnot. 
And so I got into this probably around like 12 or 13. And what was wild about it was that there were people at every stage in the sort of career ladder. There were sort of neophytes like me who were basically writing like Dragon Ball Z and Robert Jordan fan fiction. And then there were people who had been published in like Asimov science fiction. There were people with like novels out, right? And so you have this huge spectrum of experience and people are just sort of coming together and learning from each other and helping each other get better. And one of the really interesting things that I discovered was that the more that I read and talked about other people's work, so not just reading uncritically, but reading with an eye for, okay, what does it look like for a character to work in this scene? Like when I say that, what does that mean, right? Or what plot beats are going on? Like the very vocabulary for that started to develop through this critique process. And people talk about having critique groups and critique partners. This was sort of like an ad hoc critique group. And it was cool because you could build relationships with people here. So like you submit the first chapter of a book and, you know, somebody comes and reviews it and then you go review the first chapter of their book. And then you both do your chapter twos and your chapter threes. And then all of a sudden you've read each other's whole books and you develop this incredible relationship. And so that I think planted the seed for the foundation of my learning. Throughout my academic career, I'd probably taken maybe like two create like actual creative writing classes. The vast majority of my learning happened outside of school. And a lot of that came down to reading for specific things. So trying to figure out how elements of plot were handled or how characterization was done and also seeing on a sentence level how these things happened. So like actually studying books that I was reading, that was basically my sentimental education. You just definitely put me to shame. That's amazing, <laughs> Toshi. You are an inspiration. And I'm still blown away that at 12, 13 years old, you had your own drive to throw yourself excitedly and passionately into that opportunity. Are there books that you can share with our listeners? It's interesting. A lot of advice that I hear people give is sort of read omnivorously. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I like, like that term. Read everything. Read the good. Read the bad. And it's funny because a part of me, you know, I don't so much bristle at that so much as like, you know, kind of uh, because – Life is too short for me to read stuff that I'm not going to like. And so I'm always like, there's so much good stuff out there that I want to read that even if it was for educational purposes, why would I read a bad thing that I wouldn't like? So my, I guess, advice going off of that is try to figure out if there's a particular th story that you like, whether it's in book form or whether it's even ancient myth that's been repurposed a number of times, and try to figure out why you like that thing. Is there a particular trope at work or is there a particular plot twist in that book that happens on page 238 or whatever? Like when you're reading books that have, say, for instance, big reveals, at what point physically in the book does the reveal happen? So I think the book that I noticed I'd been reading differently was actually The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John le Carre. And... It's funny because I, it was sometime maybe early high school when I, you know, had set on this career of, of becoming a professional writer. And before I knew how filled with snake oil salesmen the whole like how to be a writer industry was, 
So I picked up this book. I think I might have gotten it from like a Borders back in the day, which is, you know, I'm dating myself. But it was the title of the book was How to Write a Damn Good Novel. And I don't remember any of the actual advice in the book. But there were like five or so novels that the author kept returning to to illustrate their points, whether it was points with regards to character, scene endings, plot, etc., And, you know, one of those books was The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which like I read before having seen the movie. And I was like, wow, this book is really, really good. And then another book mentioned in there was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which I'd never heard of. I like had no idea like what this was or anything like that. But the plot seemed pretty cool and it was about spies and everything. And so I was reading all this science fiction and fantasy at the time. And then I pick up this book. And it's a Cold War spy novel. And not only that, it's not even like a traditional thriller. It's a literary novel. And I remember being absolutely blown away because it was so unlike anything else that I'd written. And there was so much going on. It's not a big book. Like, I I don't know that it's much more than 200 pages, but it's like I open that book and it's like looking at the inside of a Patek Philippe watch. And it's funny because that was basically my introduction to that author who would then go on to become one of my all-time favorite authors. Like I've read more books by John le Carre than I have by almost any other novelist, you know, even the ones that I admire the most. And part of that is because it's such an incredible learning experience. He handles plot really well and he manages to make it feel organic to character. And on top of that, he's able to work really well thematically. So it's funny, I actually just last night watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The movie came out in 2011. It's an adaptation of a John le Carre novel. And it's also a super like, English movie. You know, Tom Hardy's in it, Benedict Cumberbatch, Gary Oldman plays like the main character. That is an adaptation of a John le Carre novel. And what's wild about that is that the book itself is essentially a closed room mystery. The premise is that George Smiley has retired from the British like secret intelligence service. So he's no longer a spy. But it comes out that there is a Russian mole. And this is during the Cold War. It turns out there's a Russian mole embedded at like the top of British intelligence. And Smiley is tasked with figuring out who the mole is and sort of getting them out. And there are very few actual places in which the action of the book takes place. It's basically this frumpy old dude trying to figure out a puzzle. And it's one of the most thrilling books I have ever read in my entire life. I blazed through that in like four days. I was like, what on earth? I need to know what happens next. I need, And so... It's stuff like that, trying to figure out why I felt the way that I did about that book, about that story, and how he was able to make everything work at the same time so that you have this incredible plot, you have this beautiful character development, but also this manages to be some incredible treaties on like the death of empire and like the state of of post-war Britain, I think that to me was one of the most eye-opening things was that you could have all these things happening at the same time. You could have a book that works on a thematic level, a plot level, and a character level at the same time and have it be seamless. So when you are talking about how blown away you are by this book, seeing the whole structure, everything, how are you then able to apply that to your own writing? 
I was always writing novels. Most like normal people, right? If they want to get better as a writer and get published and whatever, they'll write short stories and work on short stories, getting short stories out there. And the short stories will get the attention of it. This was like back in the analog days before Twitter and everything. The short stories would get the attention of an agent. The agent would ask, oh, like, you know, I really like your short stories. You wouldn't happen to have a novel lying around, would you? And you say, oh, as a matter of fact, and then they would take you on as a client and then they would shop your novel around. I was like, I don't care about short stories. I just want to have a book on a shelf. Like I love novels and short stories are really hard. So I'm just going to write novels. And so I would write like novel after novel, after novel, after novel, after novel. And there was a period of time in high school where I was writing on average a hundred thousand words of new fiction a year. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm like working on this one thing for the last 10 years. We are so lucky this is not an in-person interview. My green tea would have been flying up and hitting the ceiling by now. Passing the mic back to your amazingness, Tochi. Yes. <laughs> But I guess this is this is only to say that I had a, a lot of opportunities in which to try to emulate the stuff that I liked about the books that I was reading. So one thing that I would notice was that if there was a particular moment in a book that stood out, whether it was like a reveal or whether it was a confrontation between two characters, I would try to figure out the plot threads that led up to that moment and see if there was a way in which I could mimic that within like my own storytelling. So even though I wasn't necessarily reading as much science fiction and fantasy, I was still writing pretty much all science fiction and fantasy. So I was like, okay, this scene, this like confrontation that happens between these two characters, how can I make a similar thing happen between my characters? What do my characters have to be like intrinsically to like make this thing happen? It was sort of like trying to reverse engineer a moment and then I would read a book and see a way that a character was depicted that seemed as though it would open up possibilities in my own work. And so if there was a character who, for instance, before I knew that there was such a thing as retired spies, I was like, oh, a retired spy that opens up all sorts of possibilities within the worlds that I'm creating. Like, what would it be like to be a retired spy in, you know, the science fictional world that I've created? So it was sort of like, taking these books that, that I was reading, taking what I liked from them, and then sort of trying to play around with my own recipes, taking elements from those dishes that I liked. And so like there'd be a lot of that, but also too, a lot of it was with regards to world building, seeing just how much or how little detail was actually on the page. And it was interesting seeing that both in literary fiction and in speculative fiction, because I feel like I learned a lot by studying those things in concert, as opposed to just seeing how it was handled in speculative fiction or just seeing how it's handled in literary fiction, where you and the characters presumably share so many references. And so I think that also helped with my writing education in a way. Wow. Okay. You need to teach courses. Like I'm <laughs> so serious. Like my hands are all over my face. Cause I'm just like, Poof. you know what I mean? Like, Oh, so I see that you have so many books under your belt that are published and you have even more just from writing. Cause you love writing a hundred thousand over words per year. <laughs> Imagine you're a mentor slash teacher Two things. One, having writer's block, working on the same damn thing, <laughs> me, raise his <laughs> hand, for like 
the last 10 years. And also people who are afraid that they're only one hit wonders. They're like, okay, I got this one book down. Yes. But also it took me eight years to write this book. Now that I have a timeline, oh shit, how am I going to create those two other books within the timeline? I don't know if I have enough ideas to carry through at the same standard that I was able to produce for the first book. You're a master at this, obviously. So you are the perfect person to ask, how then do you move forward in this way and carry that same standard? If anything, you're pushing yourself, you're growing, you're evolving. Do you have anything to share to mentees having trouble in that regard? I know, you know, quite a few people who, you know, they've had eight, 10 years or however many to work on the debut that gets published. And then the next book has to come out in like two years. Yeah. I don't know about that one, chief. But I think part of that is, is, you know, cultivating a sense of confidence in yourself to have learned various lessons and assimilated knowledge that went into crafting that first book because it's very much a learning experience. And I think when we talk about learning experiences, we talk so much about the learning that we forget about the having learned. So you're not coming into book two as a complete novice. Like you're coming into book two as a person who already wrote a thing and who already wrote a thing that's going to be published. So there is there is that level of assimilation of knowledge, but also I think there needs to be the understanding that there isn't necessarily a formula so much as like, okay, I it's not so much, oh, I know how to write books so much as it is, okay, I know how to write this book. And stuff that you've learned in the past and, you know, previous writing endeavors, um, that can go into that learning how to write this book, capital T, capital B. I mean, in terms of taking time to write a thing, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, like, how long did Madeline Miller work on The Shield of Achilles? Like, it was like, it was like 10 years, right? But like, it's a good book. She put her foot in that. Like, it's, a really good book. And so I think part of it too is, is to ask yourself, you know, if you're afraid what you're afraid of and try to figure out what you love about the story. Because for me, like so much of it comes back to the love, right? Like if I'm not excited about this idea, if, I don't, if I'm not in love with the act of bringing this idea to fruition, you know, at the end of the day, then why am I doing this, right? And sure, there can be all sorts of like fear and trepidation layered on top of that. But if there isn't necessarily that foundation of love and excitement, then I don't know if this is like, there are easier ways to be famous. (laughs) I think that's part of it is try to figure out what you're afraid of. And a lot of times that that can come down to, oh, are people going to like it? Is it going to sell? You know, will any agent pick this up? Forget about all of that. Like, I think at its foundation, you know, you're writing this because you wanted to get this story out of you. You wanted to get this incredible thing that was in your head and in your heart onto a page. And 
that I think is the most important thing. All the other considerations, sure, they're important and, you know, whether or not an agent's going to like it or whether or not it's going to sell to an editor or whether or not you'll hit the list or whether or not you'll win this award or whatever, like all of that, fine. But at the end of the day, that's not the thing that drove you to start writing this thing, presumably. Like that's not the thing that initially pushed this idea out of your head. Along those lines, <laughs> your writing is so expansive and it's never just one category or about just one topic. How do you know when those stories are really begging to be told from you, from your voice? Oh, man. It's interesting because I write about what I'm interested in and what fascinates me and what confounds me and what I want to learn more about. So it's interesting because I think a lot of this ties into issues of representation and depiction on the page. And, you know, there's a whole knot of issues tangled up there. And I very much ascribe to something Toni Morrison said, which is, you know, write the book that you want to read. And from a very early age, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the book that I would be happy I stumbled upon in the library, right? Like that was the book that I personally would be happy to have stumbled upon in the library. So a book that appealed to like my specific tastes, <laughs> uh, like that's what I wanted to write. And a corollary of that is that I want to write stuff that's not out yet, like stories that aren't being told yet, or at least that aren't being told the way that I can tell them or I want to tell them. And I think it's interesting because I think that dovetails a lot with the issue of representation and the telling of stories from people with marginalized backgrounds and you know stories from marginalized communities, or at least that are filtered through the lens of a marginalized writer. And it made me think a lot about why my favorite book is my favorite book. So my favorite book of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. And talk about a well-plotted book. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And I, I love revenge tales. And it's like the quintessential revenge tale. And it was my favorite book of all time and is my favorite book of all time, not because I saw myself in any sort of phenotype fashion in any of the characters, but because Alexandre Dumas, the guy who wrote it, was a black dude. And at the time, everybody that I was reading that was a black author was writing about how tough it was to be black in America. And I'm a kid who's in love with science fiction and fantasy, watching all this anime, you know, reading all these comics. And those are the stories that I want to be, you know, diving into, you know, the, the spaceships, the adventures, the buried treasure, like all of that. And so to see a, a dude who looked like me writing stories about adventure and revenge and buried treasure, that to me was like, oh, so I really can write about whatever I want to write about. And so that immediately destroyed the notion of being a pigeonholed writer for me. So it was something that I never really worried about because it was never my prerogative. If I was going to write about something, if I was going to spend as much time you know, on a book as I would need to spend on a book or on a story – it needed to be something that I was interested in. It needed to be something that I would be fascinated by and that could sort of retain the capacity to fascinate me for the duration of the project. It's so freeing to hear when you were saying that, you know what, I came across Count of Monte Cristo and I saw that 
that was what sparked me in falling in love with writing what I want to write about. But how many other authors too, who didn't come across that realization Mm -hmm. or epiphany, and they do feel like they have to choose carefully which stories they want to tell, Mm. even if it's not the story that they really love and want to put out there, but Mm -hmm. feel like they have to go with the other story they feel would almost do right by their entire community. Yeah, no, there's so much... There's so much pressure from all sides in terms of dictating what type of story a person should feel comfortable putting out into the world. It's interesting. I'm actually watching or I guess sort of rewatching and hopefully eventually finishing um, Homeland because I remember it originally debuted 2011. And I think I was in film school at the time. And I remember watching it at the time and at the time thinking, oh, this is the best written drama ever. Like, this is incredible, like very well plotted, et cetera, et cetera. And looking back on it now, especially having watched so many more TV shows and films and having expanded my own sort of consciousness with regards to ideas of the world, you know, I look back particularly at these early seasons and a lot of it looks really dated, particularly the Islamophobia. And I'm watching it now with an eye for the Arab and the Muslim actors, because those are the most compelling stories, not even the characters, the actors, because... That, I think, gets at some of what you were getting at with regards to representation and the sort of dictating, or I guess the dictates, you know, because at that time, how many Muslim characters were there on TV? Were there any? Like, what variety of Muslim character was there on TV? Like, we're talking like 2011. We're talking literally the year that bin Laden was killed, right? And so you look at popular depictions of Arabs and Muslims at the time, and then you see, you know, a show like Homeland, which is purporting to be a more nuanced perspective on intelligence and counterintelligence and terrorism and whatnot. And I always think about the actors from Arab and and Muslim backgrounds that take these roles because there's that like – hey, you know, it's a role and there's a check, it'll help me get to the next thing. But also like, hey, maybe if I can infuse this very two-dimensional character on the page with some sort of life and humanity, you know, when you're coming from a place where you don't have the power, you know, there's only so much influence that you can exert and you have to get creative in the ways in which you exert that influence. And I feel like similarly with storytellers, Being non-white, there's only so much influence we can exert within our industry with regards to the stories that we tell and how we tell them and, you know, how creative we can get in the exertion of that influence. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't remark at all the privilege that I've enjoyed being, particularly being a dude, like being a, a heterosexual cisgender dude. People will listen to me in a way that they refuse to listen to my female colleagues of color, my non-binary colleagues of color. And that's just demonstrated fact. I'll pitch an idea or I'll write a book and it will be accepted. Like a prime example, a prime example is my novel War Girls, which came out October 2019. It's essentially about the Biafran War, which is the the Nigerian civil war that ravaged Nigeria from 1967 to 1970. And it's one of the most verboten topics in Nigeria. Like, you just don't talk about it. And I wrote a whole-ass novel based on the Biafran War, and nobody gave me flack for it. 
nobody came at my neck for it. Nobody was like, hey, you shouldn't have done this or you should. Like I did a radio interview that November and I generally don't make it a practice to read comments on the internet. But a lot of the feedback that I'd gotten both on my social media and elsewhere was like people cheering me on for bringing up the issue of the Biafran war. Nobody like came and pilloried me for like turning it into a science fictional context or any of the ways in which I treated it. Nobody was like, oh, this isn't historically accurate, even though the story takes place in 2172. But, you know, you look at, for instance, how my colleague, Dr. Nettie Okorafor, is treated online for literally anything that she writes. And you look at how almost instant and and vociferous the backlash is to it from certain corners of the internet. And like, that's it right there. And also like, she's done everything. She's done all of the things. She's won Hugo, World Fantasy, Nebula, Eisner Award. She's written 18 books at this point. She's basically a deity and people will have no problem coming for her neck while completely ignoring stuff that I'm doing. And so I'm very cognizant of the fact that throughout the entirety of my journey, I have enjoyed that privilege. And so that I think has colored a lot of my own journey. And so a lot of what I may feel is the relative ease, at least with which I'm able to move through the industry can be attributed in part to that. But at the same time, I think one of the things is that it's allowed me to cultivate a sense of confidence in myself and in my work that I think is beneficial to generally any writer from a marginalized background. I think there can be the temptation to adopt this posture of obsequiousness, like, oh, like, here's my little story. I hope you enjoy it. Um, And, you know, we won't necessarily advocate for ourselves in the strongest terms, right? Whereas it's funny because this is a thing that I learned going to Yale. If you can walk into a room knowing in your bones that you belong in that room, and not just that, but that you own the ground that you're walking on, if you can emulate that posture, that goes a long way. That was the thing that I learned going to school with rich white kids was how to walk into a room believing that you own it. And particularly coming from a marginalized background, being a writer of color, you're going to always have detractors. Always. Detractors that pay no attention to the work whatsoever. They have no actual comment on the merit of the work or, you know, none of their attacks will be justified. They will just want to knock you down for who you are. But if you can cultivate and maintain that confidence in yourself and know that you wrote a damn good book, like nobody can tell you differently That, I think, is one of the most valuable things an author of color or an author from any marginalized background can have in this industry. When you brought up your colleague, Nnedi Okorafor, she's incredible. And how you brought up such a fantastic point about male versus female, right? Perceived. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can move forward in a way that there is more equality, especially in that aspect? So I think about this a lot and I try to figure out, you know, effectiveness too, because I'm not a fan of the performance of allyship or the sort of toothless performance of allyship, you know, having been on on the other side of that being, you know, a black person and seeing white people perform allyship, but not necessarily put their backs into it. I always try to keep an eye out for material advancement. And so what that means for me is 
sure, it's it's good to call things out on Twitter or in front of an audience and let people know in very stark and uncomfortable ways that certain behavior is not tolerated. At the same time, how best can I put money in the pockets of the people that are being targeted? Or, you know, how can I materially advance their career, right? And I think one thing, one thing that's happened for me is that almost as soon as Beast Made of Night, my debut got published, people were asking me to write things. And people were asking me to, to you know, whether it's, you know, appear for certain interviews or do this or that. And it was this beautiful bounty, but to a certain extent, it was more than I could handle. And I feel like that happens to a lot of dudes where they get asked to do all these things and they have to decline, right? But one thing that I've tried to get into the practice of doing is decline and recommend someone else who would be good for this thing. So whether it's appear on a panel, whether it's an editor of an anthology that's trying to solicit contributors, you know, if I don't know a woman or non-binary person of color to recommend, that reflects poorly on me. And so that's what I try to get into the practice of doing is if there's stuff that I can't do, like just diverting that work to people who would do an incredible job at it and who can definitely use those opportunities. I think that like that for me has been one of the most important tools in the toolkit for allyship because that is a tangible way to help advance someone's Mm. career. Yes. It's like right there laid out in steps where it's almost once you say it, like if people don't even consider that, it's just like, why would you not consider Mm -hmm. that? Right. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. I want to wrap up with your book coming out. So Rebel Sisters is coming out November 2020 this year. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Um, How are you feeling? Oh, man, it's wild. So because my publishing schedule has been so like hectic for the past, I guess, three years at this point. It's been like book after book after book. I've always been so focused on like the next thing that I'm working on that I almost at certain points in time forget that I have a book coming out. Oh my God. (laughs) And then I remember and I'm like, oh, wait, what? I have a a book coming out. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's like remembering that your birthday is this week. Is like, yeah, it's like, oh, oops, I just pushed out a baby. Oh <laughs> uh, No, but it's, it's a book that I'm supremely proud of. I think similar to what we were talking about earlier with regards to craft and expanding your knowledge of it, like there's some stuff that I tried in Rebel Sisters that I'd never tried in a book Ooh, before. Ooh, really? So yeah. It's it's really, really, really good. And one thing, too, that I really appreciated about the book is that it allowed me an opportunity to delve thematically into a lot of, you know, geopolitical issues that take up a lot of mental real estate in my head. You know, there's a very direct commentary on the refugee crisis, you know, colonialism, all these incredible things that I get to. It's It's funny because rewinding to an earlier part of the interview, one of the ways in which I was able to make writing in my academic career work was that I would tell stories about the things that I was learning in the classroom. And so I was a, I was a poli-sci major and, you know, with a focus on international relations and political economy. And so a lot of that stuff made its way into my fiction. So now I'm writing about refugee crises and sovereign debt and, <laughs> and, and you know, international capital flows and, and all this other stuff. 
And it's stuff that was like on a syllabus for a class in college. So yeah, I'm I'm incredibly proud of Rebel Sisters and the story that I was able to tell with it. I really can't wait for, for more people to read it. Oh my gosh, Tochi, can I ask you to give our listeners a snapshot? Certainly, certainly. So... So Rebel Sisters picks up about five years after the end of War Girls, and Ify is living a successful assimilated life in the space colonies, and she's on the verge of becoming the director of a wing in her hospital, in the hospital where she works. And at a certain point, a virus starts to infect the children in the refugee ward that she supervises, and to fix this problem or to figure out a a solution to this crisis, she gets sent back to Nigeria, where it's believed this virus has originated. Meanwhile, there is this young synth, this, I guess you could say, half-human, half-robot child who's trying to figure out which half she really is, who's struggling with memories that she doesn't know whether or not they're hers, is drafted in this mission to sort of uncover the memories of a war that the government wants everybody to forget. And so these two characters, Ifi and Uzo, are set on this collision course with each other, and Rebel Sisters is about what happens next. Congratulations! I'm so, so, so thrilled for you. So where can people find you speaking online, where they can join, where they can show up and show support? Definitely watch my Twitter timeline at Tochi True Story. Also, my website, tochionyebuchi.com, will have updates and whatnot. We're currently putting together the final details of the Rebel Sisters tour, so stay tuned, watch those spaces. And I'm also on Twitch at Tochi True Story, so I'll probably talk about it a little bit there while I'm playing uh, some video games. Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. Okay. And I know you also have Instagram. So can you also share with everybody where they can find you on Instagram? Yes. On Instagram at Trez64. That's T-R-E-I-Z-E-6-4. Trez as in the French word for 13. Tell us what are some current reads that you've been loving and just drinking up that you need to recommend to us? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness gracious. So I will say a book that I read earlier this year that still sticks with me and like still comes to the very forefront of my mind when people ask me this question is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And that wraps up our conversation with Tochi Onyebuchi. Tochi, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and wisdom and helping us all find the confidence to tell our stories. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Tochi on Twitter at Tochi True Story and on Instagram at T-R-E-I-Z-E 64. To download the writing prompt that he created just for our storytelling community and to find all the books and resources mentioned throughout his episode, head over to the show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash tochi dash onyebuchi. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88cupsoftea to meet your fellow podcast listeners in the 88 Cups of Tea space and experience what it's like to be a part of our storyteller community. 
We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress, along with swapping recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole lot more that happens in there. So join us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I will catch you in the next episode.